I hope that you'll turn with me in a Bible to the book of Exodus, chapter 14. Exodus, chapter 14. And in this chapter, we see one of the most unforgettable scenes in all of Scripture. The great climactic showdown between the Lord God Almighty and the Egyptians, especially the leader of the Egyptians, Pharaoh. It's all been building up to this moment. God versus Egypt. And we know who wins. We know how this story ends. This is a scene that's been captured through all kinds of art forms. But there's nothing like the actual words given to us by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want to focus on today. And there are so many things to see in this, in this history. But what I want to bear down on is the nature of these two different groups of people facing one another. One group, the Egyptians, is composed of the cultural elite of this day and time. They have the very best in weaponry, the very best in technology. They are organized. They are experienced. They have all kinds of tactical and strategic advantages in this showdown. How could they lose, given all of that? On the other side, we have the Israelites, fresh out of slavery in Egypt. They're unorganized, they're inexperienced, they're mostly unarmed, or at most lightly armed. They have no grand strategy, they have no grand plan. They have a leader in Moses and his brother Aaron, but... Not a lot of confidence in Moses and Aaron. And they're at a tactical disadvantage here on the battlefield. They're backed up against the Red Sea. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. They would seem to be stuck and without hope. And the worst part of it for them is that God told them to be here. They are exactly where God has told them to be. And so the only place to go is across the Red Sea, across this body of water. And what we see is that both of these groups of people are going to attempt to cross this body of water. But only one will make it on the other side alive. Why? With all the advantages of the Egyptians, how is it that they're the ones who drown in the Red Sea? And the Israelites, with all their desperation and helplessness, they're the ones who survive. Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, provides the answer. There we read, By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea, as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, 
they were drowned. What's the difference between these two groups of people? Most fundamentally and most essentially, faith. Faith is evident and present in the Israelites, and it is completely absent in the Egyptians. That's the difference. That's what we need to see here. And we need to focus on the nature of this faith. When we feel like God's put us in a place we don't want to be, when we feel as though we have nowhere else to turn, when we feel like our back is up against the Red Sea and we're facing down all kinds of opposition, this faith is what makes the difference. But we need to know what it is. It's not just optimism. It's not just hopeful thinking. What is it? What is it? What is being highlighted is the active nature of saving faith. The active nature. And this is something we must bear down on and emphasize today. Our tendency, my tendency and your tendency, is to fall back into a very passive form of faith, which in fact is not faith at all. It does not save. Saving faith will be active when it is brought about by the Holy Spirit and God's people. Active faith. So let me put this summary statement in front of us to begin before we dive in. What we want to see here is that saving faith doesn't wait to see God act before obeying. Saving faith, real faith, true faith, faith that enables God's people to be saved through their trials and tribulations. It doesn't sit back and wait to see God act. That's what we want to do. That's a lot easier, isn't it? Just passively wait for an epiphany. Wait for God to do something. No, saving faith obeys God, obeys God actively and wholeheartedly and sincerely, and waits to see him act to fulfill his promises. We obey first. We step out first. We take the leap first. And we wait to see God act. And God does act. As he acted for his people here. But there's so much helpful instruction for us here because the Israelites don't get this at all at first. At first, their tendency is to whine and to complain and to sit back and think, God, we did everything you want us to do. Why aren't you acting? Why aren't you intervening here? That's our tendency. But by the end of this chapter, we see that God brings them to a saving faith. And that's what we hope and pray God will bring about in us today. So let's read together beginning at verse 1 and continuing through verse 9. Exodus chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahirath, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, 
hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. Pausing there. In order to obey God's commands, to do what God wants his people to do, we first need to see what God has promised to do. We need to see what God has promised to do. And what God has promised to do is to gain glory for himself. To gain glory for himself over Pharaoh, over the Egyptians, over his enemies, over anyone or anything that would stand in opposition to him. This is what God has promised to do. He says, I will triumph. I'm going to bring you to the point of no return. You're going to feel trapped between the Egyptians and the sea. And Pharaoh is going to think, I've got him right where I want him. And I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to make him so stubborn that he forgets about all those ten plagues. He's going to forget that I already killed his firstborn son, all in response to his own rebellion and disobedience. He's going to forget all that, and he's going to think instead, what have I done? I've let my slaves get away. I've got to go pursue them and recapture them. What have I done? And that kind of thinking is going to spread throughout the Egyptians. They're all going to think this way and act in response to that thinking. And God says this is all the outworking of my sovereign plan. This is all as I have designed it. Now, how different is our way of thinking? When we see the Egyptians or the enemy approaching, when we see the trials and the tribulations of life in this world, when we see the opposition gaining momentum, when it seems as though God's plan and God's purposes have failed, when we feel like we're in a place we do not want to be, what is our tendency? We think, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why have you put us here? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why have you brought this hardship or this turmoil? What did I do? Why are you allowing this to happen? Do you see how different our thinking typically is from what God has revealed about what he's promised? Notice, it's just as important to know what God has promised as it is to know what he has not promised. And what he has not promised is that his people won't 
experience turmoil or trials or hardship or adversity. He hasn't promised that. On the contrary, he's told his people then, and he tells his people now, you're going to be in places where you think you have no hope. You're going to endure things that are beyond your ability to endure. You're going to have to carry burdens that are too heavy for you. And that is all by my design. Why? Because this is how God gains glory for himself. Because who gets the victory in that scenario? Not me. Not you. Not the Israelites. Not the Egyptians. God and God alone. And it is good and right for God to be jealous of his glory. Why? What is the highest good in this universe? Can you answer that question? What is it all about? The glory of God, the worth of God, the character of God, the goodness and the greatness of God. That's what it's all about. It's not about me, it's not about you, or the things that seem great and good in the eyes of people. It's about God and it's about his glory. And so it would be wrong, therefore, for God to not be jealous of his glory. It would be wrong for God not to gain glory for himself by triumphing over his enemies, including Pharaoh and the Egyptians and including the hardships and the adversity that we face in our lives. This is what God has promised to do. And here's what that means for you and for me on a daily basis. When we see wickedness spreading, when we see evil seeming to triumph, when we feel cornered, when we feel stuck, when we feel out of options, when it seems like the wrong side is gaining momentum, remember this. What has God promised? He's promised to gain glory for himself. And this is all the outworking of God's plan. We're told in Romans chapter 1 that God's wrath poured out right now in this moment looks like allowing sinful people to do what sinful people want to do. It doesn't necessarily look like thunderbolts falling on them or, or tragedies or disasters happening. It looks like letting people do what they want to do. If they want to reject God or try to redefine God or marginalize God or change God's word or twist God's word, that's evidence of God pouring out his wrath. This is the outworking of what God has chosen to do. And expect God to triumph in the end. He has the enemy right where he wants him. He wants the Egyptians to pursue his people. He wants them to think they're going to win. He wants them to follow after the Israelites through the Red Sea because he's going to gain glory for himself. And anyone or anything that stands in opposition to this God will be defeated. And if you don't see it now, trust that you will one day. This is the nature of saving faith. God hasn't promised comfort or ease to his people, but he's promised that he will save his people through trials and through tribulations. Are you convinced of that today? The Israelites weren't convinced. Let's continue reading at verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, 
The Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Pausing there. Here we see illustrated what not to do. We've seen what God has promised to do. He's going to gain glory for himself. And here we see illustrated what not to do. And what not to do is to focus on self. To focus on self. And this is exactly what the Israelites do here when they see the Egyptians bearing down on them. They start whining and complaining. Now, we would never do that, right? When, when times get tough, that, that's not some, I mean, those, those Israelites, man, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. No, no. We need to see ourselves in this. This is exactly what I'm tempted to do. This is exactly what you are tempted to do, to whine and complain and to focus on self. And we can break this open a little bit more to show specifically what it looks like to focus on self. And the first thing we see them doing is distorting the facts. Distorting the facts. And how are they doing that? Well, they say, you, Moses, what have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Were there not enough graves for us in, in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out here to die? They're distorting the facts. Because did Moses force them to leave Egypt? No, they were all too ready to leave. They wanted to go. But how quickly they forget, right? And just how quickly we forget. And this is how fallen thinking operates. The Egyptians are so quick to forget these 10 plagues that the Lord has just brought upon them. And now they just don't get it. They're doing the exact same thing that brought the plagues on them in the first place. And now the Israelites have forgotten how God spared them in plague after plague after plague after plague, culminating in the final plague where their firstborn children were spared, all because of the blood on the doorpost. They've forgotten all of that. Now they're ready to rise up against God and against God's chosen servant, Moses. And it looks like distorting the facts. Are you forced here? Did you not gladly receive the good gifts? Do you receive good from the Lord, all the, the goodness of his provision to you on a daily basis? Do you take for granted the fact that you're still breathing right now and that your heart is still beating? And are you going to accept that good but not when God leads you into a tough spot? You're going to give up on him now? This is all distorted thinking, and it distorts the facts of the past. The next stage in this thinking is to shift the blame. It's Moses' fault. You did this. Should have never listened to you. That's what they're thinking. Oh, how we're tempted to shift the blame. I didn't do anything wrong. Not my fault. It's her. It's him. It's them. It's this group of people. It's that idea. 
It's this circumstance. It's not me. Shifting the blame. Pointing fingers. And it's as old as the fall. God says to Adam, what have you done? That woman. He says to the woman, what have you done? The serpent. It's never us. And we need to recognize this about ourselves. We're all tempted to distort the facts, to shift the blame away from ourselves. And all of this is a form of focusing on ourselves, and it reveals the absence of saving faith. We've got to watch out for this. It crops up in our thinking so consistently, and we've got to repent of it. And then finally, we see how they idolize the past. They idolize the past. They distort the facts, they shift the blame, and they idolize the past. How do they do that? They say, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You see how messed up this thinking is? Oh, for the good old days where we were laboring under Pharaoh's taskmasters and his whip. Oh, for those days... Sure, sure, maybe there were some problems, but that would have been better than dying out here in the desert. And and this is how we're tempted to think as well. We tend to glorify and idolize the past or past season of life where everything was great. The grass was always greener back then. If we could only go back to that time or that stage, can you identify? And what we fail to realize is that every season of life, Every stage of life has its trials and its tribulations. To be sure, some seasons have trials and tribulations that are more severe than others. But there is no perfect season of our lives in this fallen world. You see that. And so we've got to beware of this kind of thinking. When we don't like where God has brought us, we don't like where God has put us, and we're tempted to think, oh, It would have been better if this had never happened. Watch out. Watch out. You're focusing on yourself. It's not about you. It's not about me. Don't focus on yourself. Look to God. And that's exactly where Moses points the people next in verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still or to be silent. It could be translated. To hold your peace. Here in verses 13 to 14, we see what to do what we are to do. We've seen what not to do to focus on self, but what we are to do is first to rest in who God is. Rest in who God is. This is what Moses points the people toward. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. You will see. Obey and then you will see. Trust him and then you will see. Why? Why? Because this is a God who fights for his people. 
This is a warrior God who will never allow his people to be ultimately defeated. They may be stymied, they may be slowed, they may be hindered to some extent, but ultimately they cannot be defeated. And he does this by giving to his people the most powerful weapon that he could ever give to his people. And it's both defensive, as we see in these verses, and as the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, where he tells us to take up the shield of faith, the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the shield of faith. This is your protection. The evil one will send all kinds of fiery and painful darts your way. Use faith to fend them off. This is the the weapon that God has provided for defense. And we're promised in 1 John chapter 5 that this faith will have the victory. This is 1 John 5 verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes, that is, has faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith is what triumphs. Saving faith. Faith that rests in who God is. That you have only to be still. God is going to fight. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I don't need you to do it. I will fight. I'm telling you to put on the shield of faith to protect yourself from the darts of the enemy. Are you wearing the shield of faith today? Are you resting in who God is? There are three vital things to understand about the nature of the saving faith. You need to understand that faith has an intellectual dimension, it has an emotional dimension, and it has a volitional dimension. To put it another way, it involves your head, your heart, and your hands. It involves what you think, how you feel, and what you do. And we see all three taking place here, all progressing. To have saving faith, you must believe certain truths. This is why doctrine matters. You must believe that God exists. You must believe that this God speaks truly. You must believe that what God says in his word carries the authority of God himself. You must believe these facts. And you must believe that this God sent his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins and to be raised for your justification before God, to be declared righteous before God. You must believe those facts. It involves your mind. And so also the Israelites have to believe that this God is real and that this God has spoken and that this God has promised to gain glory for himself over Pharaoh. But that's not enough. Because you can believe those facts. You can know all the answers intellectually. Your head is in the right place, but your heart isn't. Your head's got to be in it. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
You must believe in Christ. And the ordinary way that God brings us about is through the proclamation of his word. But what do we read also in Romans 10? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your heart, your emotions, your feelings must be engaged. And that's where we see the Israelites. When they're terrified, they're fearful, they know they need help. And until you recognize the danger of your position apart from what God has done in Christ, you will not have saving faith. You can believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but until you can admit that you deserve the judgment of God, until you can admit that you deserve hell, and that your only possible escape is through Christ and through his shed blood on the cross, you do not have saving faith, and your heart must be engaged, your feelings must be engaged. Your emotions must be touched. Now, to be clear, your faith is not based on your emotions. I want to be really clear about that. It's dangerous because sometimes our emotions just aren't engaged. And this is where we need to go back to the doctrine. We need to think. We need to read God's word and have God's word stir our affections for Christ through the working of the Spirit. But if your affections aren't enlivened when you hear of Christ, when you hear Christ preached, when you see the name of Christ exalted and magnified, then you don't have saving faith. Your heart, your emotions, your affections must be engaged or your heart is cold and dead and on its way toward hell. No, our heads must be engaged. Our hearts must be engaged. And here comes the hardest step of all. Our hands, our volition, our will, you must act. To use a very simple illustration. It's one thing when you go to see your doctor, to believe your doctor when he or she says, you need to take this medicine to help you get better, to recover from this illness. That's the head part. You believe that. You trust her. You trust him. But is that enough? No. You've got to go to the pharmacy and you've got to get the medicine. And then, that's not enough. You've got to actually take the medicine as it has been prescribed. So also, the Israelites here, they've got to hear God's word. They've got to trust God's word. They've got to trust that he speaks truthfully. And they've got to believe from their heart that he is good and that he is working for the good of his people and that they have no hope of being saved apart from doing what he says. But that's not enough. They're right there on the cusp. They're just at the edge of the Red Sea, but what do they have to do? They have to step out into the sea. They've got to act. They've got to obey. They can't stand on the shore and wait for God to act. They must act. And this is what we see taking place powerfully as we read the remainder of this chapter, beginning at verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh 
his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Here's the second part of what we need to do. Obey what God says. Obey what God says. And look what he does. Why are you crying out to me? I'm telling you what to do. Step out. Cross. Moses, stretch out your staff. The waters part. The Israelites cross on dry ground. The Egyptians try, and we know this had to be dry, dry ground because even muddy ground would have stopped chariots. But they see dry ground and they think, we have a green light, full speed ahead. Let's go, let's get them. And God brings the walls of water crashing down on them. And in a day and time where very few people knew how to swim or were taught to swim, they are drowned. And the Israelites see the gory, terrible, and yet just result of all of this. The dead bodies of these Egyptians floating. And they can only conclude one thing. We see this in the summary, verses 30 to 31. They see that God, the Lord, saved from literally the hand of the Egyptians. And in verse 31, they saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. He rescues them from the hand of the Egyptians by the power of his omnipotent hand, his all-powerful hand. But do you see what would have happened if they had just stopped? If they just said, okay, we're just going to sit here and be still. 
Your emotions need to rest in God. You must rest in who God is. He will fight for his people. But your will must be involved. And this is what is missing from so many people in the church today. They're so passive. And they think faith as just a passive thing. And while faith does begin by receiving and resting in what Christ has done for you, if you have received that, you will act on it. You will live it out. You will obey everything God commands to the best of your ability as you are enabled by the Holy Spirit. We are saved by faith alone. But remember this. Saving faith will never be alone. It will be accompanied by works, by effort. Do you realize that? We are to be not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Are you a doer of the word? Are you sitting back in your hardship and you're, and you're complaining, you're thinking, why has God allowed this? What is God doing? You're focusing on yourself. Or are you standing there on the, the edge of the sea? And you don't know why God's put you there, but you know he has. You don't know what God's going to do next, but you trust that he will do something. He will gain glory for himself. He will work for the good of his people. You know that much. So are you just going to stay there and be stuck? Or are you going to step out and act and be bold and leave the consequences to God? Remember, no one is spared from trials in this life. No one. Every single one of us will have to endure trials. Some of them will be more severe than others, yes. But no one is ultimately spared from trials. The difference is some will be saved through their trials while others will be swallowed up by their trials. Which will it be for you? We're promised that there's only one way to be saved through these trials and that is faith in Christ alone. Because just as God vindicated Moses here in chapter 14, he shows that Moses really is his servant, and the people put their trust in God and in Moses, his servant. We have been given someone far greater than Moses. We've been given the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's done for us something that Moses can never do for the people of Israel. Jesus didn't just raise up a staff. He allowed his body to be offered up as a sacrifice to shed his blood in the place of sinners like you and like me to absorb in himself the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And God vindicated him as he vindicated his servant Moses by raising him from the dead, by showing this is my son. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Obey him. Obey. Don't wait. Don't wait and sit around passively. Actively obey and look for God to act. I don't know exactly how God will act in your life, what he will do, what he will bring about. But I can tell you something that we will all see. You will see this. I will see this. And it's described for us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. 
Can you say amen to that today? One day, every eye will see the Lord Jesus returning to this earth as the judge. And this door of opportunity to receive God's mercy, to receive his pardon and his forgiveness, to be declared righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done for you, that door will be shut closed forever. Now is the day to turn from your sins, to repent of your complaining and your whining. Now is the day to turn to Christ, to look to Christ, to come to him. And we have his promise that whoever comes to him, he will never turn away. Come to him. You don't have to go anywhere or do anything. Just humbly present your heart to him. Say, here's my life, God. It's yours. I'm ready to obey you. Come what may. I'm ready to do what you tell me to do. I'm ready to go wherever you tell me to go. I'm yours. And you'll see. You'll see the great things that God can do in response to the humble obedience of his people. May he do great things. May he bring about wondrous works. May he bring about salvation in your life today. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for the assurance that we will see. We thank you for the instruction that the way the world is now is not the way it will always be. We thank you for the promise that you will gain glory for yourself by exalting and vindicating the name of Christ Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that we all would receive Christ today. That we would surrender our lives to him if we never have before. And that if we have surrendered our lives to him, that we would be obedient. That he would be Lord of our lives. That he would have absolute sway over our being. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We need your Holy Spirit to awaken our minds, to help us to think rightly, to awaken our hearts so that we feel as we should feel, and to empower us to act on what you have revealed and what you have told us to do. Holy Spirit, work in our midst, starting in me, Lord. Work in all of us. Bring us to Christ. Empower us to be the presence of Christ in this world to be your people in this world, to be your hands and your feet, to fulfill your great commission. We need you, Lord. We pray that you would lead us and guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.